This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes your valuable home is for you the project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors the college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home what to look for in replacement windows how to borrow sensibly against home equity and more college teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune their suggestions are great for roi it's time for your valuable home we got Tom back again this week to talk about this pretty substantial project, right? Yep, yes it is. With his house, with the live dormers, and yeah. Provia windows, and more. So yeah, we're, well, we're, we're getting into up. the and more right oh, now. Finally, okay. yeah, and yeah. wrap it up. And as usual, what we're going to be starting is giving shout-outs to our listeners that I always write in and give me some great information. But before we get started, so Grandpa Joe Grandpa is a Joe. listener of the show okay. back when we were in broadcasting almost 10 years ago and is still a faithful listener. Wow. So I wanted to give him a shout out. So, Grandpa yeah. Joe, thank you very, very much for being for, a devoted listener. Yeah, 10 years. So Tom, we uh, we had you on last week. We talked a good bit about some of the, the prep work you did, some of your ideas, designs. Are we coming through with your whole envision of this project? The vision my wife and I had, is actually when we bought the house, we knew we wanted to do something like this. Give the house a little more of a traditional look, but yet when you're inside and upstairs, there's a very unique feel to the layout. That's what we were trying to move for. Um, we knew the area where the work was going to get done was going to be difficult. Uh, a lot of infrastructure in the way. And um, just seeing you and Dave scale up on that roof was, uh, you know, we sat out there with cocktails and just watched you guys for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. What he's talking about. That's the way you want to do roofing, Tom, <laughs> with the cocktail in your hand. <laughs> I didn't sleep for about four or five days. Now, here in Pennsylvania, the area that we're, we're living in, it hasn't rained in about a week and a half. So if anybody ever needs rain in whatever part of the country, what we're going to do is I'll come over and I'll sign a contract with you and our, our do live dormers because then it rains. See, with this job here, we had to do it where there was no rain. So we ripped the roof off. Then we had to cut the plywood out. Then we had to take rafters out, complete rafters out, and then rebuild the structure to what the plan said. Are you we doing had to this do. in the rain? No. Well, the first day we decided not to work okay. because they were calling for about an inch and a half of rain starting wow. around three o'clock. So we wow. said, we're not even going to take okay. that chance. So the next day was Tuesday. We started working. We got everything prepped where we needed to. Then we put a tarp over it. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to put it over very gingerly because basically the room we're in, when Tom's walking from his bedroom to that hallway that he talked about last week, all you're seeing is a tarp. Could you imagine being in your bedroom, looking up and seeing the sky? You're lucky it didn't get too windy, right? Oh, it was windy. Yeah, it was. It was windy. It was. Okay. I, I left him a message. I said, hey, Tom, listen, whatever you do, uh, don't open the front door uh, because the updraft is going to just throw this tarp off. So we yeah, had right. it down pretty tight. Next day comes on. It was Wednesday. They knew we, we knew we were getting rain, but we were trying to get as much done as possible. We wanted to set our walls where the window was going to be. 
So we worked diligently and it was tough between the unwalkable roof for us, trying to get everything restructured and framed. So, because we had the inspector coming the next day to inspect the work. Mm -hmm. Well, around 11 o'clock, it started raining. So we then we had the tarp, we set it over and put it out. Now, of course, I didn't sleep much that night because any bit of rain that comes in, I'm, I've got to go to his house quickly and try to stop the rain from coming in because that's what you have to do I mean, for three days. In the middle of the night, maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so then the next day we had a nice warm day. It was sunny. We were blowing through it. I was exhausted. Dave was exhausted trying to get as much done as possible. And then it was Friday, the last day, but we knew there was a big storm coming in on Friday, but we had pretty much everything wrapped up. We got their inspection from the inside, and it was going to be coming on Friday, inspection installation. And all we had to do was put some collar ties, a couple of hurricane clips on Simpson strong ties that we used. Mm -hmm. But he said, I can get that on the final, the installation, and before you can get everything done. And by that time, the roofer came, stripped the front down, and started shingling the front. And we were probably about 90% done and 99.999% watertight at this point. But it was the difficulty that we went through to try to do this. Well, yeah, you're dealing with Mother Nature who doesn't always deal a fair hand. She hates me. Yeah, right. She does. She yep. does. And Tom was enjoying it, but watching us with a couple of cocktails and just stress over this. But even my wife said the time, because we're neighbors and she said, yeah, Tom, he, he didn't sleep for about three to four days. Cause it's you, me. you know, what was most interesting, Kevin, on one of those rainy days, Dave was in the garage building the frame for the dormers and you guys cut open the roof, did the rafter work, and then he fit the frame right in. And I thought, wow, what a, that, that was really smart. Dave's a pretty smart guy. Well, you can make up, you make up the time for, because of the rain that way, right? Right. Yeah. And that's what he was trying to do. He was yeah. just trying to set, because we knew the wall had to be this length and we were set up with the rafters according to the plans. And we can just, it was only about a 48 inch wall. We slid it up the roof, dropped them right in place, had all the mechanics in place, put our ledger boards up, put the ledger locks in so everything was in code. And then we started plywood because it, we did an inverted dormer. So the roof where it's very steep, where the window is, it, the window and new roof drop well below the pitched roof. Mm -hmm. And it's got an inverted dormer where we had to put some rubber roofing down because it was only a one and a half pitch. Yeah, you would have put um, shots of this on your Facebook page. Oh, we are. Or yeah. Instagram. Yeah, this because this it sounds like an interesting job. It was my last job, too. It's mm -hmm. the last live dormer job I'm going to do. I, three things. I'm not doing three-story siding jobs. I'm not doing live dormers anymore. And I'm waiting for the third thing that I do not want to do anymore. Probably a high-rise building, right? <laughs> there there, there, you, there go. you go. I'm right not going to build that. There, there you go. Because I, I even said to Tom a couple of days ago, I said, Tom, listen, take a look around. See this? This is the last job you're ever going to see me do. <laughs> and Dave's like, well, I would do it on a flatter roof, but when the unwalkable, it just made the job so much difficult. So when you're hiring a contractor- so real steep pitch it was steep enough that we had to put boards down to walk right yeah. because if not we were sliding i mean tom you you saw me sliding down the roof probably about and, a dozen and i've times. been on that roof kevin I've, i used a rope to lash myself to a tree it's a steep roof it's it's borderline whether you can walk on it or not it is it is but what we did was we uh we didn't do any shingling i put ice and weather shield the first couple rows and i put uh roof jacks with boards on it so if we did happen to slide down we were protected. There was only a rancher anyway, but I'm, I'm not getting up there without being safe. So we put these boards down to multi-level so we can walk on it, but it just takes a beating on you. Now, if I, I'm sure it does, yeah. 25 years ago, I'd be doing this, but I'm 53 years old now. Dave's 56 years old. You'll be doing this till you're 80. Probably, yeah. but I'm not doing that. <laughs> so it's official time. I'm not, you, you heard me say it on the Your Valuable Home podcast. I am done doing them. Unless somebody wins the Powerball and wants to pay us that, I, I just can't do that anymore. But it worked. It really looks great. The roof's done. Uh, we just put the windows in just before I got here at the studio. Uh, the interior drywall is probably about 95%. We have one more coat to do, and we're going to sand and prime uh, starting in a couple of days. And uh, the siding's You're doing up. the drywall, or do you hire, hire somebody to do that? We did the drywall. It was you only a few it. sheets. Oh, okay. Very minimal. Uh, probably, what, 
five sheets per, if that, maybe four, for the whole walkout dormer, would you say, Tom? Yeah, I, I would say so. You know, what, what I liked about the finished product, I know it's not quite finished, but it's close enough you can see it. The house is really now very unique in that neighborhood. You know, it just the house pops a little bit, which is nice. Well, the combination you talked about last week, the combination of the black roof, right? Gray siding, it really pops. I mean, it's going to draw a lot of attention to itself in the neighborhood, I would imagine. Yeah, you don't see these type of dormers in our neighborhood at all. You probably don't see them generally anywhere, do you? No, you don't. No. When you're building a house, it's very easy to do it. But as you're redoing it because of what you have to work with with Mother Nature. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the roof itself. And we, Dave did a phenomenal job on this. The roof started at one end, and by the time he got to the other end, it was an inch and a quarter in about a 12-foot span down. So we had to make it look visually even. Yeah. Yeah. So we were shimming. A lot wow. of shims on this job. Wow. But that's the whole thing of when you're knowing what you're doing. And Dave really had this thing figured out. He knew what to get to, what to look at. But it's just trying to give a good education to our listeners. If you're going to be hiring somebody, boy, you do not want to mess this one up because I, I, my wife's yeah, seen this it. This is not a job for the faint-hearted, right? No. Yeah. No. I mean, Tom, are you inexperienced? Nervous at all when I uh, I got the first day and I ripped everything off and you saw the tarp when you're walking up to your bedroom? Yeah. Well, you know, you gave us the heads up, don't let it get windy, and you know, which kept me up all night waiting for the wind to start blowing. But, you know, yeah, you walked out there and I just imagine the tarp getting ripped off one night. And you stare up there and feel the rain coming down in your in your bedroom, pretty much. Yeah, we don't want to be doing that. I, there was an insurance commercial just recently out. You see that they show a husband and wife, and they're taking a picture of them through the skylight or the hole through the roof on the tree. And they're talking about how great it looks outside. And she said, hey, honey, I think it's time to put the tarp back over the roof because the insurance company didn't give them the money yet. I think it was an insurance commercial. <laughs> and that's what I kept thinking to myself the whole time. But. We're done. I'm going to put the pictures on our Instagram, Your Valuable Home, and Facebook. Yeah, so these could be interesting pictures for people to look at because the dormer style, other people might be interested in, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I will guide, even if you live in this area, I will guide you in the right direction to you're hire not, somebody. You're not doing do. it. You're not doing <laughs> it. Okay. I'm beat up a little bit about doing that. But the, the biggest part was having the black windows with the Provia windows with the simulated divided lights. That's what looks the best. Yeah. It really yeah. pops. So I'm going to have all that on. They make knockout products. They really do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love working with them. Easy installation. So, and I know, Tom, are you happy with everything we've done so far? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is exactly the way we envisioned it. So we're, we're in great shape. Our horror story for today is something that uh, is near and dear to your heart. Measuring windows properly, and these weren't, <laughs> right? I'm sure going to be getting a call from this contract. It's a local guy. And they just had the work done just probably within a six-month period. Well, they called me up to do an addition and a kitchen. Many people referred us to him, and I said, well, listen, I'll go out there and we'll meet up with you. And uh, he said, listen, they told a lot of good things about you. Then they, I know you have a show and you did all these awards and magazine covers. I, I, we should have got you to install the windows. I said, okay, well, look, let me come out and we'll... We'll discuss it. So as soon as I get there, <laughs> you can see there was a, a little bit of an issue. So as I met him, we walked around back first because I, uh, I saw the windows in the front were different. I'm going to try to explain about how this works out. So as I was talking to the gentleman, he said, hey, let's go in the patio door and we'll, we'll go speak in the kitchen. We'll go show you the kitchen first and then we'll work our way back out. So as I tried opening the door, boy, it felt like that door was 2,000 pounds because the sill, when they put it in, is so crowned and bowed that the door has got to go up and over, which then rubs up at the top of the, the header, so the door doesn't slide very well. Well, that, that's when he part of it. Then I said, well, why would they put the leave the two-by-four on the bottom of this door when you could just bring it down to the concrete and you don't have this big step to go over to walk yeah, out right, the patio to, door? To make a lot of sense. 
Well, here's why. They left it on there because the door itself was a smaller door. So there's two types of doors height-wise. So they measured it well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So like give an example, like if you get an Anderson door, their Anderson door stock is six foot five high, which is like six, seven, six, eight. And then if you get like a six, eight door, let's say like a Marvin door, uh, that door is stock at six, ten and a half. So there's a couple different sizes. Being in the business long enough and knowing what manufacturers to work with, you've got to know that height size. So they ordered the smaller door, but had to replace it with a the bigger door that was in there. So that bigger space, they wanted to use trim to cover so they didn't have to do any painting around where the old trim was from the old door. So what they did is they put a two by four in the bottom of this patio door to raise it up so they didn't have to paint. I said, wait a minute. So it takes two minutes to spackle that. Maybe you got to feather in some paint. It might take about an hour and a half. You've got to walk over this door. The threshold's about four and a half inches high to get so over. Somebody's obviously going to trip over. Oh, yeah, they've right been now. tripping on it for the last six months. Oh. So we get into the kitchen. And I said, listen, I'm not here to bash the contractor, but um, I would have him rip this out and put it down to the floor because this you're walking out and you're going to be tripping over it and you're already having problems the with door's it. door's the wrong size. <laughs> yeah, but what you could do is just pack it down and just put some spackle and put it around the top of the door with the header piece where that old trim line was, lightly sand it, and just repaint around it. The room was painted maybe about two years ago. I said, you just feather it back in or paint the whole wall. Mm-hmm. By doing it that way, you're, you're done. You never need to do it again. If somebody's going to get hurt on this thing. Four and a half inches? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, basically it's a step. But here's the nice part. When you put a two by four down, you probably want to prep the opening below that because when they said on heavy rain, <laughs> the water comes under the door because it's a two by four that's just sitting down. The She said they nailed it to the concrete. I said, all right, but what did they do to prep it so water and air doesn't come nothing. in? She's like, well, nothing. Nothing. They just painted it. So it's painted on the inside. And they put some capping on the outside, but water still comes in. So we're in the kitchen now. We're talking about a few other things. And I said, well, listen, I I know you're an expert. Can you tell me what they did wrong here? So I said, are you talking about the front windows? And I said, I don't need to go any further. They were mismeasured. So as we got to the front, and I said, I'll explain why. We opened the plantation shutters and then the shutters, they had the window. Now, it's the existing opening. So for our listeners, if you have a windowsill and then you have drywall on the wall and the drywall turns into the window, they put a replacement window in and then just put it to the drywall. But the problem is it was measured about four inches short. And what they did is they built the from the sill up four inches, put a piece of colonial base molding trim, you know, the base molding that was predominantly used in the 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. put that on over top of the one by four. So you have this big white bottom, but on the outside, it's a piece of metal that's about five inches at the bottom and then about two inches around the rest of the way. And I said, it's pretty obvious that they measured the windows wrong. It's a replacement window made at the custom quarter inch. This is measured wrong. So they're complaining about it. Now the contractor's like, well, that's the correct size. And I said, well, listen, if you want, I'll come back out here. I'll meet with the guy. And he was going to be very upset with me, but I don't really care. I said, this is a bad job, and he really shouldn't be. And he got his money, too. That's the worst part. Did you meet with the guy? I, I didn't meet with the contractor, but I'm no. sure I'm going to be getting a phone call from saying, why you why you bashing? I'm not bashing anybody. I'm saying, look, if you, for our listeners, if you hire a company, I don't care if they're $20 million or $20 billion company, you put in a window inside an existing opening and it's four and a half inches short. You did something wrong. You mismeasured right. it. It's made to the custom quarter inch on yeah. any vinyl window. So when people order a vinyl window, that's what you're getting. Yeah, a quarter inch you can do with shims, right? Perfect. Exactly. Because the window frame might be a little bit off. Right. So I showed her the video that you and I did for the Provia video. I told him about our sponsor, and we talked about it. It was the Sugar Shack on YouTube, Provia by the Your Value. You're going to show this to the contractor. 
<laughs> she goes, well, they, they, no, no, they, they didn't do any of that. I'm like, well, why no? I said, because if you look at the corners of your drywall, see this browning staining that you have coming in here? This brown stain is called water. It's penetrating water. in. Water. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. So I said, well, well, all they did was four screws and caulk. So now we have two new listeners of the show. Uh, the homeowners are going to be listening, but they watch the video and they're like, what can we do? I'm like, well, you can't do anything. You got to rip out the window and rip redo out, everything. Do it over again, yeah. So I said, unless you can get a stretcher on a window and stretch it. So I, by the way, but just laughing at it the whole time. It's job. unfortunate people have to go through this stuff. You know what I mean? Well, you know, people always talk about getting a job from somebody and they're saying, well, this company, I see their signs everywhere. They advertise. Does that mean they're good? Listen, I'm not here to bash anybody, but I've been in this business for 34 years. I'm seeing what's going on out here. These people ought to be ashamed of themselves taking the homeowner's money on what it's a shame. you it installed. Really it's really and she was trying to communicate. She couldn't communicate with them. They didn't speak English. So she's trying to call then the office where this company was, and they couldn't get anybody on the phone. And the guy, so here's the best part. She said, this is the one thing when I was leaving. She said, well, this, this is one of the worst parts that I felt of the job. And I said, well, what happened? She's like, well, they left the outside. They didn't cap anything. And of course, they didn't do any interior work. They're trying to get the outside because it was done in the wintertime. So they got a lot of the stuff done, but they didn't cap the window, but they wanted to insulate. So they came back at around six o'clock at night in the middle of the night because it was dark because very little daylight in December. And what they did was the guy just walked in the door, didn't even knock because they left it around three o'clock when it got dark. But at six o'clock, she's up at her bathroom unchanged and she's getting changed and uh Guy just walked in and started insulating. Scared the heck out of her, she said. I said, did, did he knock? He's like, I was the only one home. I didn't know somebody was just going to walk in my house. But this is what you go through. But if there's, again, there's no quality control, this is what you're going to run into. So I said, well, are you complaining about it? Because you hire the guy. That's the thing. I said, if you go to court, what they're going to tell you, you hire the guy. So you have to deal with it. I hate to say, but it's how much was the total job? You know, seventeen thousand dollars. Oh my word! So they're going to be, and, and not all the windows are mismeasured wrong. I said you can't tell how from. Could the, you do, how could you do that? I mean, if you know, if you do some of them right, why would you do some of them wrong? I mean, I I don't know. I, I just don't know. But some of the windows you can see mystery. capping around them looks normal, two and a half inches all the way around. But the one at the bottom on this one was four and a half inches. It was a big cap. It's huge. So I said, this is a problem. I said I would try to call them back and. If you want to meet you out here, it's not too hard to figure out. Right, so it's a $17,000 job, but it's not a total write-off. No, no. I, there's probably about one, two, three, four, five windows and a double that need to be reordered and redone. And then I would tell them, rip out the patio door, which is fine. You can take it out, set it aside, take the two-by-four off. So it's a it's a six seventy five hundred $7,500 fix? Correct. Okay. But they should be doing it. If you're a contractor servicing the public, shouldn't you do the right job from the beginning? And if you don't have the guys in place to do it, why are you selling as a contractor? If you take pride in your work, you're going to want to have to uh, want to do this uh, over again. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I if I knew I what mean, I mentioned. Good or bad, people are going to talk about it going forward. If you think, think you're going to get some referrals out of measuring windows wrong, it's not going to happen. No, no. But what was nice about the development that she was in, I said, yeah, I said, this was the first Marvin job done uh, in the country. That's when I did back in 1992. And I did this. And I'm pointing to all the, the people that I've worked over the past 30 years in that development. She's like, I know those people. I'm like, well, I asked him about it. And if you want us to do the job, why don't you go to them and say, was he clean? Did he show up every day? And this is going back 30 years ago. So I said, ask him, see how it is, because I'm still in business after 30 years. This mm-hmm. company has only been in business for three years. I checked it with uh, Pennsylvania. And you can just see on their license, and they've been in business for three years. 
They probably, by their fourth year, they'll learn how to measure for windows correctly. I think it takes about 10 years oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah, measure yeah, a window. Yeah. Watch. Take the tape measure, length, <sighs> width. You measure it. Maybe shrink it a quarter inch if you need it. Some of this stuff is really hard to believe, you know? Well, that's it's why we're really hard I, to believe. I'll be putting the pictures on social media so you can see it. A lot of people are like, how do you... Are you really seeing the stuff? I'm like, well, here are the pictures. Mm-hmm. The one we did with the rotted window. I said, well, they, there's the rotted window. Yeah, they just covered it up with tape. So uh, these are the things that... It's hard to believe, but contractors today, they think they're contractors. They should stay out of this business. Go cut a lawn. This way the grass can grow again. Because once you order a window, it's ordered and it's installed. And if the contractor note was that short, those guys should have never put the window in from the beginning. Say, hey, we messed it up. We'll finish the ones that are right. We'll not do these. Yeah. How hard is that? Quality control. And I told her, I said, when you hear the show and I talk about S&S, salesmen and subs, that's what this whole industry is. I said, in my... Well, do you know for a fact that's what happened here? Oh, yeah, I know the company. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know the company. I don't know the owner, but I know one of the foreman guys that work for them. Uh, he said we have one crew that actually goes out. It's a handyman kind of guy that fixes all the mistakes of the main crew. This handyman's not fixing this. <laughs> no. oh. I think I said, you need. A, I told him, the guy, you need a window stretcher. But oh, it's boy. a very simple fix. They just got to buy two new windows for that area, then the other one's the double and the other single's above. And just, that should be his dime, the contractor's dime. Absolutely, yeah. it should be. Okay. Yeah, the salesman that did wrong, well, now you got a problem. So yep. I'm just kind of getting tired of seeing this bad work because it makes my job harder to sell as a contractor because if people don't know who you are and they're just trying to get estimates and trying to find out who's going to be the best pick for it, it makes it harder because now people are on the defense of having all these bad contractors take their money. So if you do have any questions, contact us here at the show. We're going to make your life a lot easier when you're hiring the contractor to do the job that it's done right. Stick with us because we've got part two of a fascinating story that involves Pew Charitable Trust and 300 different organizations and individuals to save a million acres of salt marsh from North Carolina down on into the Upper East Coast of Florida. Salt marsh is very important because it performs a number of vital functions, including acting as a carbon sink, being a home to marine life. When you go have a shrimp dinner the next time, think about salt marsh because that's where they're coming. You'll make me hungry. Got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Kevin here, installing another Provia entry door. I do about 50 or more a year. Schlage knobs, hardware, and handle sets make a great complement to any Provia fiberglass or steel entry door. Provia and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. Provia and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. Okay, right. as we continue into part two of our feature segment, what do we got going on? Last week, Cameron Jaggard from uh, Pew Charitable Trust was here to brief our listeners on the massive task of protecting, preserving salt marsh, really valuable national resource in coastal areas of North and South Carolina, Georgia, and East Coast of Florida. I urge all our listeners, especially those who live in those areas that I just talked about, go back and listen to last week's podcast if they haven't already, and definitely listen to this one. Put the two Good information. A lot of good stuff in here. This week, Cam is back to brief us on the actual plan that these 300 individuals and organizations have all agreed to sign up for, which in itself is a massive undertaking, to save the salt marsh and the organizational components and the plan called Marsh, M-A-R-S-H, Marsh Forward, we're two years in the making. Cam, welcome back again to your valuable home. Amazingly, some 300 organizations and individuals, including scientists, each with different vested interests in saving the salt marsh, have agreed to go forward. Collectively, this group is known as the South Atlantic Salt Marsh Initiative, SASMI, S-A-S-M-I. It's 
marsh forward mandated to those in SASME or voluntary? It's voluntary. So the SASME plan is the first landscape scale salt marsh protection plan that prioritizes actions directly benefiting national defense, wildlife communities, and cultures of the South Atlantic states. So that's how we have 300 partners on board because we're really looking at it in most holistic way possible. How do we protect marsh not only for its value as an ecosystem, but in terms of its value to people? So importantly, the plan and SASME itself are non-regulatory, voluntary, which is part of the reason why I think it's been so successful. Stakeholders want to be a part of SASME and implement the plan, not because they are being ordered to, but rather because each of them understand just how important salt marsh is. And there's a shared understanding underlies all this as well, that we are up against great challenges, including sea level rise and the other impacts of climate change, a rapidly growing population that really wants to live on and near the coast, and the resulting pressures from that, like coastal development that can harm salt marshes and the surrounding lands and waters that we depend on that support our way of life along the South Atlantic coast. So in order to be successful, it's going to take this unified effort of all of these partners working across these traditional local, state, and federal boundaries to make that impact, to actually implement the plan and and save marsh for future generations. Okay, now we use this acronym SERPAS, S-E-R-P-P-A-S, which was functional in this geography, but how instrumental was the work being done by them in the Marsh Ahead plan? There are key partners. Again, it's a six-state partnership between the Department of Defense and other federal and state natural resource agencies, and it promotes collaborative decision-making. So their partnership played a major role in shaping both the Salt Marsh Initiative and the plan for the initiative. And that includes their participation on SASME Steering Committee, which is our primary governing body, and in developing all the materials and participating in that week-long workshop that really laid the foundation for development of the plan and then sustained engagement from then on and helping to shape the plan and all the key aspects that make it actionable and that will actually Actually lead to a positive change in the region. How exactly did Surpus and Cube partner to bring together all these diverse organizations? Q's partnership with Surpus meant that we had key partners brought to the table immediately, very early on, which allowed them to be heavily invested in both shaping up what the initiative was and what it meant, what its goals were, but also the plan. And so now they're going to be with us here playing a key role in implementation of the plan. And building off of the Surface Pew partnership, it's been a process of building out that SASME coalition to ensure we have an even broader, more diverse and inclusive group of stakeholders that are not necessarily governmental organizations all the time, that also includes cultural groups and fishermen who may not be a part of any kind of initiative but who have a vested interest in protecting salt marsh into the future. There are three overall strategic directions in Marsh Forward. There's construction of oyster reefs. Number two would be the removal of barriers to facilitate what is called marsh migration, and you explained that the first time around. Three, the conservation of land adjacent to salt marsh, which also facilitates marsh migration. How will each of these be accomplished? 
you know, the broader goal is to enhance the long-term abundance, health, and resilience of that million acres of salt marsh. We keep the overall benefits. We don't lose any of those benefits it provides to the environment, to people. In order to do that, we identify two primary strategies that we want to protect and restore what we have in terms of marshes now, and then look to the future for those marsh migration corridors and the barriers to that migration. So, as you pointed out, there's definitely some key actions that are really important to protect salt marsh in the future. And making them happen will require a multitude of stakeholders all working together, you know, each bringing different perspectives and skill sets and resources working together. I think SASME will first need to look at all the available data that's out there being collected by the states and by the feds and the data i think that's less known that cultural groups have been holding and been sharing through storytelling and other things like those lived experiences for generations but working with the, all of these groups to identify areas where each of those actions the things that you mentioned and, and others are best suited so and then develop a plan for each project to secure funding and implement it. So fortunately, SASME's coalition members are already leading a bunch of independent efforts, building oyster reefs to serve as living shorelines that can help protect salt marsh and also help bolster resilience of those waterfront properties. They're working to identify and advance efforts to remove and modify barriers to marsh migrations, things like culverts and low-lying roadways that can be problematic for both the infrastructure, but also the future of the marsh. And, and they're also doing things like identifying and conserving those lands that are adjacent to salt marsh that buffer from harmful activities today and that will provide that space for salt marshes to migrate to in the future. I believe the number of people living in coastal communities in the impacted area has more than doubled since 1970. What was the number then and now? Well, I don't have uh, the specific numbers, wasn't able to dig those up, but I can tell you that according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, more than 128 million people, which represents 40% of the U.S. population living in coastal counties in the U.S. So huge amount of people have decided that the coast is the place to be. And despite that fact, uh, the U.S. coastal areas account for just uh, less than 10% of the nation's land mass. So it's not only a lot of people all along the coast, but you know it's a very kind of thin band that they're all squeezed into. So, and it also happens to be, as we know, a very dynamic area, whereas you know more inland, you, you're exposed to less risk. Well, on the coast, you've got not only the weather that can push in from the west, but then you have hurricanes and other systems that can push in from the Atlantic so it, um, or, or from the Pacific or other water bodies. So it's a, you know, it's a really dynamic and sort of risky place to live, but it's also obviously a place that there's lots, lots of great things to do. And I, I understand that I myself live <laughs> five minutes from the beach. So it's a natural tendency. Well, you know, the, that population, it's, it's a huge population, a small land area, but a lot of that's got to be coming from uh, areas around like Boston, which is not too far from the beach, uh, New York, which has got, you know, Queens, large swaths of Queens, and even Brooklyn, Staten Island are beach areas, areas going down the coast too, like pretty big metropolitan areas going down the coast. Virginia Beach, for instance, a lot of people and very, very little land area. So that, that complicates this whole issue, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it just makes it that more urgent a need <laughs> to, to implement some, some positive changes that will help these people continue their way of life in these coastal areas for as long as we can. Well, to that point, 
I would imagine there are elements in this plan, Marsha had planned, that would guide more informed growth in, in the area. Is that true or false? Yeah, no, that's right. You can't look at salt marsh conservation and protection without thinking about people and how people, where they choose to live and how they choose to develop has a major impact on that resource. So the plan includes a number of actions that address development along the South Atlantic coast because you can't protect and conserve salt marsh without also thinking about where people choose to live and the types of developments because they all have an impact on the resource as well, both in the coast and in those areas inland and upstream that are important to existing marsh and that could support marsh migration in the future. Um, so some of the actions that are included in the plan are ex- expanding requirements and potential incentive areas that can buffer marsh from development impacts. So, you know, the idea is you're not building right up against the salt marsh edge. You're allowing some natural area in between you and the marsh to help minimize the impacts of runoff and other things like that. Um, another action would be engaging uh, in land and water resource use planning. So that could be thinking, oh, why, why does that impact the marsh? But if we can incorporate salt marsh health as a metric for success in those planning processes, then it starts to change the way we think about and measure our success. Another thing would be to promote the use of nature-based solutions. We talked earlier about oyster reefs and living shorelines. So those types of things can not only help protect salt marsh, but also protect important infrastructure, you know, in a way that provides ecosystem value. One of the participants in, in this whole thing is the Department of Defense and Paris Island. Are oyster reefs part of the plan to preserve or protect Paris Island? Yeah, they uh, they have a large living shoreline installation that was done there in partnership with Pew and uh, South Carolina Coastal Conservation League and others. So they've been one of the bases that are certainly you know looking at nature-based solutions as a way to, again, to provide that resiliency value, to protect their installation, to protect their uh, readiness and operations, but that provides that habitat value. They The Army is an important conservation partner. I mean, or the military at large is an important conservation partner, and they are responsible for all these public lands, and they really do you know, what they can to you know, preserve the mission and protect the mission, but to do it in a way that's conscientious and supports those ecosystems that are also part of the land. Okay, so salt marsh and the preservation of it is really a matter of national security then too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is uh, a key first line of defense for these critical installations uh, where we have submarines going out and keeping tabs on foreign nations and where we have pilots and others coming to train to learn how to land on aircraft carriers or fly surveillance drones. There's a whole number of activities that are hosted within the more than dozen military installations in the South Atlantic Salt Marsh Initiative region that uh, they all connect back to really uh, critical uh, national security priorities. Okay. So with all these things going on in all the different constituencies that you've got to appeal to, including all the people living in these areas, is there an educational component to this too? Oh, yeah. Salt marshes are incredibly valuable and people need to know that. I think many understand it, but many also have no idea. So as the plan makes clear, we need to keep building awareness among stakeholders and decision makers as well 
about the importance of salt marshes, about all the things that salt marshes do for people, and then the threats that they face and how if we're to meet those kinds of threats, which are you know global in scope really, but all impacting us here in, in the region, we, we've got to work together. And we've got to implement solutions that can benefit marsh and people looking at it, you know, as hand in hand type of thing rather than salt marsh being kind of separate from us. We can recognize how intertwined our fates really are. Yeah, which is taking up an initiative that the, the Golagichi Nation has done for a long, 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 long time, right? Yeah, it's been a great opportunity to partner with them. They instantly got it. <laughs> they, like you said, yeah, stewarding the marsh is, is just a part of who they are. So uh, they're a natural partner, great partner. Okay. To be clear, I, I just want to you know get this on the table. Marsh, M-A-R-S-H, forward, doesn't directly address climate change, but rather the impact of climate change on one very valuable national resource, and that's salt marsh, right? That's correct. However, salt marshes and other tidal wetlands play a major role in capturing and storing greenhouse gases that drive climate change. So by protecting them in those inland areas that deliver them the nutrients, sediments, healthy freshwater flows they need to survive um, and providing those places to migrate, we're also helping to mitigate global climate change. Those can be sustained carbon reservoirs, carbon sinks to help keep those greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and from causing harm. Yeah, very important point. I'm glad you made that because there is a component that has to do with climate change and that's it. What are some of the other military bases uh, by state that are at risk? Like we said, over a dozen, to name a few, there's Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. There's Naval Submarine Base Kings Bay in southeast Georgia. And then there's Naval Station Mayport in northeast Florida. There are just a few of those other military installations that are right there in that coastal interface. And they're they're grappling with the impacts of sea level rise, more infrequent intense storms, and also encroachment by incompatible land uses, suburbs and uh, shopping malls and other things like that that uh, really limit their, their ability to do what they need to do to make those Marines or to train other key members of the force. What will happen if these bases, if nothing is, if nothing happens to save the salt marsh? And the answer is nothing good, right? Yeah, nothing good. If we fail to protect the salt marshes and those lands that help buffer them, then we lose a f- critical first line of defense for storm energy or from storm energy, from flooding, sea level rise, and those encroachments, again, of incompatible land uses. So there's also the threat that lost marsh will lead to further declines of salt marsh dependent species, such as uh, the elusive elusive bird known as the Eastern black rail that are protected under the Endangered Species Act and which the Department of Defense is responsible for stewarding on and around base. So basically, if you have more marsh, healthier marsh, then it's much easier to help restore these depleted populations and get these species off the endangered species list, which you know is a priority for the Department of Defense just as much as U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, but if you have less of those habitats and you're not doing the kinds of things that can help sustain it in the future, then basically that could end up uh, hindering your ability to conduct operations and, and maintain your, your readiness as an installation. 
is this isn't just a big picture here. This is a huge picture because salt marshes have such impact on so many different things. From they serve as carbon sinks. They serve as uh, habitats for uh, a lot of uh, marine life, and they are vital to national security. So it's a huge picture that you all are painting here and hoping to have it come out really well. We depend on salt marshes for protection, sustenance, jobs. In short, SASME presents that clear and present opportunity to safeguard uh, really what is a way of life in the South Atlantic states that is tied to and dependent on healthy salt marsh. Will the Army Corps of Engineers be involved in this? It seems like their kind of project in a way. Yeah, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers are important partners and they've been involved since early on. They bring you know, obviously very valuable knowledge and resources to the table. For example, one area that they'll be really critical to is expanding our understanding and, and the use of beneficial use of dredge materials. So you think about the, the sediment that the Army Corps of Engineers sucks out of navigational waterways to allow ports to continue to function, to allow pleasure craft to be able to cruise on the weekends and not hit a sandbar, they can use that sediment for beneficial purposes, including renourishing marshes. And they do that through a process called thin layer placement, where they're actually mixing the the sediment and water and spraying it in a thin layer over the marshes. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, it's a delicate process. You know, it has to be monitored and, and carefully planned, but doing that can help build up the elevation of marshes where they otherwise might be drowned out by sea level rise or where they're experiencing erosion impacts from things like hurricanes, like acute events like that, or maybe chronic erosion from, from boat wakes. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities that uh, lie ahead of us to to utilize this material and actually in doing so potentially save the Army Corps of Engineers, save the taxpayer money is that material may just otherwise be a burden if we don't have good things to do with it. What is the timetable for implementation here? Uh, isn't it actually a race against rising seas and more violent like coastal storms? It, it, it is. Yeah, there's there's a strong sense of urgency here. It, it's the a plan to help guide this work over the next 10 years. But we want to make sure that we implement the plan uh, hand in hand with the coalition so that these efforts build on and bring value to all the work that's already going on, just keeping ourselves coordinated and finding all these opportunities to um, add value. That's really going to be our our focus. So, you know, we're working together to develop a governance structure that will um, help SASME be that value-added entity for all of the work go- going on on the ground, um, implementing it both, you know, from that regional perspective, how do we save the million acres of marsh, but then zooming in to the states and the locales where we figure out, well, this is how we do those things, and each of those things in those areas will add up to that million acres at the end of the day. So this has all got to cost some dough, right? What is the cost and how is Marsh Ahead being funded? I don't know what the cost is. I think it will be quite high, um, but I think the, the greater cost is not 
doing anything. We are cognizant of the plan to vote as a cross-cutting section is focused on funding. Uh, it's, it's critical. So the partners are working on a number of parallel efforts to secure funding, both in the near term to support projects and programs and capacity building, but also to secure finances to support a long-term implementation of, of the plan over those next 10 years. So we're lucky and that there's historic levels of funding available tailored to support projects just like this, nature-based solutions to promote resiliency and habitat to people value for people and wildlife. And so as a first step, we're working together on regional scale funding proposals. So instead of each group kind of going on their own to secure these funds, we're actually teaming up just like we have throughout the course of SASME, and that's actually made us more competitive. So we're going to continue that kind of work. And then we're also looking at the potential, really scoping it out at this point, of a dedicated long-term public-private fund that could both help address some of these capacity challenges, support projects, and address needs that might not being might not be met by these existing funding sources. So for example, if you're a land trust and you have a great opportunity, a willing seller on a piece of property where you know Salt marsh is going to migrate, but also if if it's developed, which there, you know there could be somebody, some imminent threat of development, you really want to conserve that land, but you know that you're not going to have the funding you need for another year, and in that time, it will likely be sold, and and the development process will begin. So, so this could be a potential source for uh, bridge funding to make sure that those kinds of opportunities don't slip away because they don't mesh quite right with uh, timing. Uh, of, of funding sources and that sort of thing. Is there any plan to donate to this worthy cause? Uh, yeah, so I, I definitely encourage uh, anyone who's interested and wants to learn more to go visit marshforward.org. That's the homepage for the South Atlantic Salt Marsh Initiative. You can join the newsletter there. And then if you're looking to do more than that, to, to join the coalition, to, to donate or otherwise get involved, we also have contact information for the uh, Salt Marsh Coordinator, uh, who's fantastic and would be happy to talk with you more and help connect you to the right folks to make that happen. I imagine when you make this happen and these strategic initiatives go into place, you've got something that you could sell to other countries, don't, can't you? Yeah, the, the plan's focused on the South Atlantic. But the the challenges are are not unique to the to the region and the solutions as well. They could be applied across other geographies. So there's already an interest in using SASME as a model to achieve landscape scale conservation in areas like the Chesapeake Bay, other Atlantic states outside the SASME region, and even in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's conceivable, and it's my hope that the initiative can help spark and inform similar efforts in the U.S. and abroad, just as we've seen our really fantastic ideas like America's National Park System being studied and replicated in other parts of the world. Yeah. Well, I hope this, uh, that is the case here because this is certainly a valuable endeavor here that you that that you're involved in, Pew's involved in, everybody in this in this mix is involved in. And we thank you for giving us this update. Anytime you got another update, it's an open invitation to come back on your valuable home. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely take you up on that. Welcome the opportunity and until then, march forward. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? 
Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing, Stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 